today's episode of The Celestial Spoon, and thank you for taking the time from your busy day to spend with me and learn about my guest. I hope you're having a wonderful winter season, although it's not officially winter. We have a couple days to go, and um, that you're not getting any harsh weather so far here on Long Island in New York. Um, it's just been raining on and off for the last couple weeks. But my husband is waiting for the snow because he is a big skier. So let's pray for snow where it's supposed to be up north in New York and other parts of the country where people can go and enjoy their skiing. And please remember to subscribe to my podcast so you don't miss any important information shared by my guests. You can find the link on my website at www thecelestialspoon.com. Also, please share these shows with your friends so they can gain value from my guests. I am your turquoise angel guide, an award-winning author and speaker, advocate for mental health, psychic, medium, and spiritual guide, along with being a wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. I have seven children amongst my husband and myself, 15, actually 16 grandchildren now, the youngest is a month, and we have a three-and-a-half-month-old great-grandson, which is our second, and we have a third one coming in February. So we have a large family, and the holidays get to be very busy for us. I share my journey of healing and accomplishment after a suicide attempt in 2014 to inspire others to make themselves come first and listen to their inner voice. I offer spiritual guidance to help you through your struggles. I also do psychic readings and spiritual guidance for every aspect of your life. Please check that out on my website too. We ask our spirit guides, loved ones, and angels to be present during our time together and to guide us through a wonderful conversation and help us share our visions with the world. Today, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Dr. Glenn Livingston about his research and book, Never Binge Again, Reprogram Yourself to Think Like a Permanently Thin Person. Stop overeating and binge eating and stick to the food plan of your choice. 
disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and, and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. So I'm looking forward to learning more about overcoming binge eating because I tend to do this myself, especially now that it's the holidays and I made our Christmas cookies that um, I get tempted too easily. So I'm looking forward to learning how I can avoid binging. So hi, Glenn. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Oh, it's a delight to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but I, I have a lot of your questions that are going to fill me in and want me to definitely get right on that pretty fast. <laughs> so is there anything interesting going on by you, Glenn, in you know, personal business or something that you want to share besides binging? Hello? Okay, we lost Glenn, and I'm hoping that I'm hoping that he calls right back. But um, binge eating, I am thinking that we may learn from Glenn that it might be something that has to do with my thyroid and my mental illnesses all combined together. Um, as I let everybody know that I have struggled with um, seasonal affective disorder for many years, and normally before the season hits, I'm discussing it with my psychiatric nurse, and we are actually planning ahead by adjusting my medication. But this year, we, we kind of missed it, uh, an appointment and I didn't actually recognize that I needed to get my medication. Welcome Hello. back, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. I'm just explaining to the audience that I have the seasonal affective disorder, and it, it kind of hit me hard this year because normally we, um, we adjust my medication before the season hits, and we didn't get a chance to do that this year. So I want people to recognize that when you are feeling down this time of year, that it can be exactly that, the seasonal affective disorder, and you should reach out and try to get some medication for it. And there's special lights called a full-spectrum light that you can put on next to you when you're reading and, and working at the computer. And, you know, all the self-help, I, I keep on thinking the positive thoughts and everything to try to stop the crying. And it's been a little bit tough for me, but um, I, I share this so you know on your own journeys that you should reach out and you should recognize that um, there is help and please reach out for it. So, Glenn, have you heard of seasonal affective disorder? Of course I have. Okay. You know, we, we are, I, I am a psychologist by training. Um, That's right. We, we are creatures of the tropics, and we're not really meant to live so far north where there's minimal light in the day. 
matter of fact, I myself just recently moved to Florida because I, I was in Portland, Oregon, and this time of year, it's just dreary and dark and rainy most of the time. And at first, I thought it was going to be cool. I thought I'd do more writing. I thought it'd be really angsty. I thought I'd meet all these really cool people. But I was depressed as anything. <laughs> I just oh. hated it. I, I just needed the sun. I just needed some light. And, you know, if, if you're struggling this time of year, then first of all, t- take advantage of the light that you do have. Get, get outside, uh, especially if it's a nice day. Uh, those full spectrum lights can do wonders. Make sure you're getting enough vitamin D, and um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really critical thing that people need to understand because sometimes they're just confused. Sometimes it hits you and you don't know what it is, and think there's something wrong with your thinking, or you know maybe you have a chemical disorder. But it, it can really just be the the um, the light of day. So I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I think that can give some people relief just to shift perspective because sometimes just knowing that you're not crazy, it's just we're not meant to live in the dark like this and you need some some sunlight so it's great yes thank you for echoing that and i did forget already that you are a psychologist and um i'm i'm so happy that you were able to share that even though you're a psychologist that you still are you know you have the tendencies to struggle with some of these things also um i never really gave thought to that until just now that you know i think that psychiatrists and therapists psychologists that you're you're in the family of oh i'm doing fine myself and you're helping other people <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're very motivated to help other people, but most of us, if you ask us where we got in the, into the profession, we, we wanted to figure ourselves out, and we were kind of a mess when we started, and, and um, there, I think there are even studies that suggest that mental health professionals have a higher incidence of um, mental health difficulties, <laughs> so it's, it's um, wow. but, but you know, if, if, you, if you commit to your own treatment, and you commit to lifelong self-improvement, and self soulful self discovery then you do become significantly stronger than the average bear internally and um, you combine that with a dedication to help other people and and you really you know it's a wonderful profession it's, I wouldn't trade it for the world it's a wonderful profession so right that, that I, is... I, I also had troubles with binge eating I also had very serious troubles with binge eating I'm not I'm not just a doctor who decided to write a book on binge eating I really as a matter of fact I was trained as a uh, a child and family psychologist, and I had a child and family practice on Long Island uh, for for many years before I even dared to work with binge eaters because I I would refer them out. I, I just I didn't think it was ethical. I had problems myself. So wow, where on Long Island was that? Um, I grew up in Great Neck, and oh, okay. then yeah, I went to school at Stony Brook. Later on, I oh. lived in Syosset for many years. Okay. And I'm in Lake Ronkonkoma. Oh my goodness! Oh wow! I I, um, I stayed in Center Reach when I was in college. I had a girlfriend in Lake Ronkonkoma. Uh, it's a nice area. Oh. Yes, it's a very beautiful area. And um, as I was saying, that we haven't really we had one snowstorm that was like, oh my God, where did this come from? And we had like three inches of snow, and the next day it was gone. <laughs> But anyway, um, you know, I'm I'm really um, surprised by what you shared. That that's a reason to go into that profession because I, I really thought of, I guess we want to call it a category of professionals that I thought you ha- all had it all together. Yeah, I, you know, 
I come from a family of 17 therapists. My, my mom and my dad, my sister, um, all of their spouses, my brother-in-law, my mo- both my, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, uh, step, stepmom and stepdad, that's what you would call them, my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, there's 17 of them. And yeah. the best way to encapsulate it is if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. So we, most of us had messed up heads to get started. And, um, you know, I, 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 who was it that said that a life of introspection is not worth living? An unexamined life is not worth living. I think that's what Plato said. Oh, and I never heard that. It's either Plato or Socrates, I forget, but it's very true. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. So, so as, let me, um, before we go further, um, I'm working with a, a card deck that is fairly new to me. It's actually not angel cards, but the card that came and presented to us was the B, luck, industrious, industriousness, and sweet victory. So it's like you're in the, the center of the flower and eating the nectar and enjoying the nectar and everything and I feel like that's the base of your life that you had the nectar and all that beauty inside you and going through your life you were eating the nectar but you weren't uh, um, allowing it to help you and as I just said that word, eating the neck, they reminded me, okay, the binge eating. So we may go back to that card because it's pretty basic, but I'm going to pull a second one also. And, oh, now we have another animal is the dog. Loyalty, sincerity, unconditional love. And that would definitely represent you in the unconditional love with being able to reach out and help other people. And the dog is very loyal because he, he wants to take care of his master and be there. This is, I think it's a golden retriever that it's showing. Do you have or did you have a golden retriever at one time? Very, very long time ago for a couple of months I had a golden retriever. Um, it's, it's interesting what you're saying because, first of all, part of recovering from binge eating is learning how to be present while you are eating and allowing the food to nourish you. Whatever you happen to be eating, even, even if you're eating junk, being present and allowing it to nourish you. And some of the more recent research is indicating that if we decide to eat something that we think is bad for us, that if we do it with the attitude of celebration and we don't feel like we are, you know, going on an all-out binge and we are horrible, disgusting people and everything like that, mm-hmm. then we're much more likely to continue to con- be able to control our foods and reach our, our weight goals than if we do it with an attitude of, um, you know, self-derogatory, um, self-critical, punitive, um, you know, self-loathing. And... And there's even further research that suggests that we are slowing down our metabolisms when we indulge in a lot of that self-loathing. And what it does is it takes us out of being present with other people, with ourselves, and with the food. This is not really what my book is about. My my book is about a more aggressive way to take control. But I just thought that was interesting with what you were saying. The, the, The dog that was the love of my life was a 
mixture of a shepherd and a chow. He was a rescue dog. He was a therapy dog. I used to bring him in whenever I couldn't get a, a little kid to open up. And it was amazing how the kids would open up. He, he was like a piece of my soul. He was with me all the time. And a couple of years ago when I got divorced and my mom died and had all this tragedy in my life, uh, January 1st, 2016, he died also. And um, i got to tell you, it, it was worse losing him than getting divorced. <laughs> That's about yeah. the worst thing I ever went through. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame, but he sounds like a wonderful companion, and I love that you shared him with the children to be able to help them open up, because um, the first time I was hospitalized for just suicidal thoughts, they had a therapy dog come in, and everybody perked up when this dog came in, so um, I know the value that they have. It's such a shame, though, that, um, you know, you, you had to lose them so quickly. Dogs know how to be alive. They know how to connect with other people. They know what love is. They're extraordinarily authentic. There's none of these games and, you know, images and um, playing hard to get, that kind of thing. It's, it's, um, you know what you have with a dog. And if you, you right. show them love, they'll show you love back. Yes, Definitely. I ended up, I pulled the third card, and this one is the eagle. Spirit, integrity, connection to the angelic realm. So do you have anything connected to an eagle? I always wanted to be an eagle. Pe- people always ask me if I, you know, if I could be an animal, any animal, what would it be? I would say it would be an eagle. And I was a big hiker, and I used to love to go you know, hiking up in the mountains where you could see the eagles. And I, I never really got one that landed near me, but um, I always respected the, you know, both the, maj- the majesty and the dominance of the eagle in the skies. And uh, wow. if there is such a thing as a next life, then maybe that's what I'd like to be. That is wonderful. That's because I didn't get any message when I pulled the card except it had some sort of relation to you. So that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. So why don't you um, share a little more about your history um, and your own binge eating and how you advanced to overcome and help other people. Okay. There's a lot to share, kind of a short time to do it, so I'm going to condense it a little bit. But okay. I, let me say that uh, it started when I was about 17, but I didn't know it. I, I was 6'4 and reasonably muscular. And because of that, if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And when I mean six or 7,000 calories, like a whole pizza or two, a whole mm. box of Dunkin' Donuts, a whole box of muffins, a whole box of chocolate bars, whatever you could imagine, I could eat it. And I would imagine I averaged about six or 7,000 calories a day for a long time. Okay. But when I got a little older and I went to graduate school and I got married and I had patients and all these responsibilities and a two-and-a-half-hour commute. I just didn't have the time to work out two or three hours a day. I could work out maybe you know, two half-hours per week. Mm. And at the same time, my metabolism slowed down a little bit, and I was sitting most of the time. So, so I just started to get fat. Mm. And I couldn't stop eating what I was eating. I found that these foods had a life of their own. And to top it all off, I come from a 
family with a tremendous amount of cardiovascular risk. So I was in trouble. The doctors were saying, look, your triglycerides are 10 times what they should be. And the odds are that you're going to have a heart attack in your early 30s. And if you don't fix this, you, know, you, you might not make 40. Well, I was told that, that two weeks ago. I'm 60, and my cholesterol is 324, and my triglycerides are, I don't remember the number, but he said to me he has not seen too many of these numbers in too many patients. So what you're talking about is going to be a great help to me. So I just wanted to interject with that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, my, they're, all, they're all more or less normal now. Um, so, you know, I... I gained weight. I, my top weight was probably about 280. I stopped weighing myself around 260. Uh, but, but that really wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part was not all the physical symptoms and the threats of death. The worst part to me was that I couldn't stop thinking about food. And being a psychologist has always been the most important thing to me. I, like, like I told you before, I'm from a family of 17 of them. And mm-hmm. um, in order to be a good psychologist, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just like you study all these disorders and you have all these answers. It, it's more like, I mean, you have to do that, but you really have to lend people your soul. You have to be 100% present and lend them your soul. And I couldn't do that if I was sitting with a suicidal person, which I did quite a bit of. I never lost anybody, but if you're sitting with them and, and you're thinking about, gee, when can I go get a box of snack wells or... How am I going to go get the next pizza? It's, mm. it's very, very difficult to be present. And if you're recovering from having eaten a whole pizza, forget about it. Yes. So it was interfering with my primary purpose in life. I figured I was young and I had some time to fix the physical problems, but it was really interfering with my purpose in life, and that really bothered me. So I, I went to all the traditional routes. I, I went to see a lot of the best psychologists and psychiatrists on Long Island and in New York City, coming from the family that I came from, I knew most of them. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I took medication for a little while. And everything helped a little, and then it got worse. I would always rebound and things would get worse. And eventually, three things came together that totally flipped the paradigm. I guess you could argue that up until that point, up until I was about 35, maybe 40 years old, I was trying to fix the hole in my heart. I figured that I must be wounded inside and that's what I'm trying to fill up with food. And for lack of a better phrase, I was trying to love myself thin. Mm. And it was a very, right? It was a really soulful journey. I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot about myself. I think I have a more rich, more spiritual, more connected life than I would have otherwise. But it didn't solve the binge eating. As a matter of fact, the binge eating got worse over time. So, yeah. So eventually, I did a study. And I, I don't have children. I never commuted. So I did a lot of corporate consulting in addition to my clinical practice in advertising. And I knew how to do these big studies. And I figured if these big companies were paying me all this money for these big studies, then they must be worth something. So I did one for myself. And I asked 40,000 people over the course of about five years on the Internet, when the clicks were cheap, if they would tell me the foods that they couldn't stop eating, and then all about their lives, what areas of their life were they happy with, where did they feel stressed, 
um, a couple of personality variables, and then I look for relationships. And what I found were three primary relationships that were very interesting. And the, I'll tell you a story about one of them that really led me to the answer eventually, but it, it wasn't the answer that you'd think it would be. Okay. So the three things I found were that people who struggled with chocolate, and that's how I always started my binges was with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And I was in a bad marriage, and so that kind of made sense. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like pretzels and potato chips and crackers, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with chewy, soft um, things like bagels and pasta and bread, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, wow, this is fascinating. Now all I have to do is solve these problems with each person and starting with myself and I'll be okay. And so before I worked with patients, I thought I'd start with myself. And I went to talk to my mom, who's also a psychotherapist, and raised me. And I said, Mom, you know, it's true. I'm kind of depressed and I'm feeling lonely and brokenhearted. I think I made a mistake in the marriage. But what, um, what might have happened in my upbringing that could have set up this pattern? Why, why would I rent the chocolate when I feel lonely, brokenhearted, or depressed? And my mom got this horrible sound in her voice, this horrible look on her face, and she said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I said, Mom, what is it? She said, well, you know, I'm really embarrassed, and I'm so sorry I did this to you, but when you were about, bless you, when you were about one year sorry, old. Sorry, I get it. <coughs> Hold on a second. Okay. <coughs> I got a cold. <coughs> okay. I'm sorry. Are you Okay. Yeah, I, I just have a, a quest that um, I got some water and I'm getting a quest drop. Okay. Anyway, my mom looked at me with this bad look on her face and she said, I'm really sorry, but when, when you were about one year old, your grandfather, my father, had just gotten out of prison. And I loved this guy and I admired him my whole life and I didn't know he was doing these things, but he was guilty. He really was. Mm. And my whole world came crashing down and I was extraordinarily depressed. The same time, your father, my husband, was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I didn't know, was I going to become a, you know, a, a widow with one small toddler and another one on the way, all by myself. I, and I just felt like my whole world was falling apart. <coughs> so, Sorry. Dad. <coughs> that's, that's okay. Okay, go ahead, sorry. So mom said what she did was she put a little refrigerator on the floor and she filled it with chocolate Bosco syrup bottles. And when I was running to her crying or needing to be held or wanting to be fed, she'd say to me, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And I'd go running over to the refrigerator and I'd open the bottle and I'd suck on it, I'd go into a chocolate sugar coma, and she'd go right on staring at the wall, feeling depressed. And I thought, wow, that's a, this is a story from the movies. This is the kind of thing you'd see in a movie. And if, if it were the movies, at that moment, my mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry. And I'd never have a problem with the chocolate again. Well, I did have a big hug and a cry with mom. And this is over Skype, so it was metaphorical. And it brought us closer in a lot of ways. I, I learned all these things about her life at the time. I learned about her relationship with her dad and, and, my, and my dad. I 
forgave her. It was really easy to forgive her after that. And I forgave myself. I wasn't so angry with myself for what I was doing after that. So it was a really important conversation to have. And it um, made me feel more connected to my mom and myself. But it didn't stop the binge eating on chocolate or anything else for that matter. As a matter of fact, it made it worse. And the reason it got worse was there was this little voice in my head that reacted and said something like this. See, Glenn, you know what? You're right. There's a big chocolate-sized hole in your heart because your mama didn't love you enough. And until you can fill it with the love of your life and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to go right on binging. Yippee, let's go get some more chocolate. And that's what I did. And I found it was very similar with other people. I talked to a client who was constantly binging on potato chips. They had a voice in their head that said, well, my work situation is just horrible. There's going to be no pleasure for me in life. I'm always going to have this horrible person breathing down my neck. And until I can fix that, I'm just going to binge on potato chips. So, So what did I learn from that? I learned that the paradigm of nurturing your inner wounded child back to health might be a soulful, spiritual, good thing to do, but it didn't really have anything to do with overcoming overeating. How did I overcome overeating? So two other things were happening at that time. First of all, I was doing millions of dollars of consulting for a lot of big Fortune 500 companies, many of whom were in the food industry. And... While I was doing that, I became privy to how they were spending probably billions of dollars all told to engineer these food-like substances, these hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that were engineered to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And if you looked at the mammalian studies on what happens when you short-circuit evolution's pleasure centers like that? Um, and admittedly, the big companies are not putting electrodes in our brains, but they are engineering chemicals that do something very similar. When you overstimulate the pleasure centers of the brain by, for example, putting an electrode in it and letting the animal press a button to stimulate, to self-stimulate with that electrode, that animal, starting with rats and up until higher animals, and I think even human beings, will press that lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of their survival needs. A starving rat will ignore its food and just press the button thousands of times a day. A nursing mother rat, yeah, it's crazy. A nursing mother rat will ignore its nursing pups and press the button thousands of times a day. And rats will crawl over painful electrical grids to get to it. So what that tells me is that there's a hijacking of the survival drive. When you artificially stimulate the pleasure centers with a concentrated form of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. I mean, we, we didn't have chocolate bars on the savannah. We didn't have potato chips and pasta and pizza, you know, in the tropics when we were evolving. So we're not evolutionarily prepared for that. We, we, um, we, we lose the attention to our survival tribe that nature really had to offer. And in plain terms, we lose interest in fruits and vegetables or you know, whole natural foods that evolution put here for us to, to nourish ourselves. And how many people do you hear these days that say, I just don't like fruit and vegetables anymore? 
You know, and they're, uh-huh. they're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to. I don't mean to overtalk you. Were you trying to say something? No, no, no. I'm just agreeing because I'm just thinking about myself. Um, most of the summer, I went through a container of ice cream every three days. I would have these overflowing things, bowls of ice cream, and I just couldn't stop. So what's it, it's an ice engi- cream? Oh, it's, it's engineered that way. Oh, God, it's engi- I mean, the, the uh, sugar and the, you know, the fat, which keeps the sugar stuck in your blood and moves you through a roller coaster insulin cycle. And then the, there are, I think it's products called casomorphines and milk products, which are, oh, no, caseins and casomorphines and milk products that are uh, addictive like opiates. They're opiate-like products that are addictive and, um, you know, there's not really enough nutrition to fill your your nutritional needs for the day. So then your body is just authentically looking for nutrition and generally in nature, calories are associated with nutrition so it's possible for the food industry to fool you, gives you something with a lot of calories, you probably think it's got nutrition in it, but it, it doesn't, so you just keep going back for more. It's, it's, um, it's frightening. It's frightening. It's, so, um, but to continue this for a little bit longer, um, it wasn't that I was hungry or anything. I was just wanting to enjoy the ice cream. Right. Right. Like I said, it's, what these foods do is they disconnect you from your genuine, authentic bodily needs. And they make you think that you want that when, when what you really need is... Like, pe- people don't believe me when I tell them that underneath their craving for ice cream is probably a craving for broccoli or a green smoothie with bananas or something... That, you know that nature had to offer, or maybe for some people it's you know animal protein, wh- whatever it is. But wow. yeah, yeah, and so and so what you have to tell yourself at those points are that feelings aren't facts. And even if every bone in your body says that you need the ice cream now, that doesn't factually mean that you need it to survive. That means that your healthy appetite has been corrupted by industry. And which is not to say people can't enjoy ice cream if they really want to. I mean, a lot of people don't get carried away with it. But your, your appetite has been corrupted by industry and your survival drive has been hijacked and you've, you've got this fight or flight mechanism inside of you that revs up and thinks that it's an emergency that you have this ice cream, but, but it's really not. So you tell yourself that feelings aren't facts and you take a couple of deep breaths and you, when you breathe in, you tense all your muscles and when you breathe out, you let it all go and you try to get out of that fight-or-flight emergency so you can deactivate that whole system and remember who you are and what your dietary plans are and why you, you know, it sounds like in your case it's really kind of critical that you eat some healthier things for, mm-hmm. for your health and well-being. So why would you say that nighttime, how, how do you pinpoint the time of day that somebody's eating? Because that's when I binge. So... It turns out that willpower is a fatigable muscle. And what, what wears down our willpower is the necessity to make decisions, not just food decisions, any decisions. For example, if we make people do math problems before we offer them a marshmallow, 
they have a much harder time resisting than people who didn't do the math problems. So the more time you spend doing email, the more time you spend having a lot of input in your face um, over the course of the day, having to make decisions about what to do with it, the harder it's going to be by the time the evening comes to figure out what to eat. You can restore your willpower. Uh, so, so the solution is to restore it throughout the day with little breaks if you can. Make sure you get enough sleep. Make sure you keep your blood sugar even during the course of the day. But you can also eliminate the need for willpower by using rules as opposed to guidelines. See, in our culture, we're told everything in moderation, just eat well 90% of the time and eat badly 10% of the time. The big problem with that is that every time you're in front of an ice cream cone or a Carvel, you have to make another food decision. Is this part of the 10% or part of the, part of the 90%? So you'd be better off saying, I'll only, eat, I'll only ever eat ice cream on the last weekend of the calendar month. Like if, you wanna, if you want to avoid ice cream 90% of the time, then have it on the last Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the month, and you'll be okay. Well, hopefully. Not everybody can do that, but most people uh-huh. can. Um, that's because all of your ice cream decisions will have been made except for those last couple of days of the month. And you don't have to use your willpower to decide should I or shouldn't I this time or how much am I going to have, how am I going to stop, how am I going to recover from it. Instead, delineate the boundaries of what you're actually going to do and when you're going to do it. And then just say, you know, I'm not the kind of person who eats ice cream during most of the month. I'm the kind of person who only has ice cream the last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of the month. I, really, really what I'm saying here is that you're, it's a shortcut for character. Character is a habitual way of responding, a habitual and pre-programmed way of responding to a tempting stimulus um, repeatedly without even thinking about it. So, you know, if you walk into a diner and there's a $10 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see her tip, and she says, I'll be right back, I'm going to go get a menu. And there are no windows, there's nobody up front, nobody would see, there's no video camera, nobody would see you take that $10 bill. Virtually nobody I talk to says they would take it. And I'll say, why? I said, no one would see you, you'd be $10 richer. And they say, yeah, but, but I'm not a thief, that woman worked hard for her money. And I'll say, so as a matter of character, you've decided that you are not the kind of person who would ever take someone else's money like that because you're not a thief and you never steal. You've got an unwritten rule in your head, I never steal. They'll say, yeah. I say, well, why, why can't you do that with food? So he, here's what I... Well, part of it is because people don't take the time to think through where the line is between their healthy eating and their unhealthy eating. They leave a lot of ambiguity there, and so they don't really know when they're eating healthy versus when they're not. So they don't have the opportunity to make that decision. The second reason is that their fight or flight system takes over and they haven't had enough practice or spent enough time amplifying their motivation to um, ramp down the fight or flight system in the moment of impulse. And I'll, I'll tell you how I did it, which is kind of embarrassing in a moment. And the third reason is that people are of the belief that they have to love themselves thin, that if they're craving ice cream when they're not hungry, then probably they're just doing it for comfort or there must be some emotional problem. But what I've discovered is that the, the part of the brain that responds to food addiction, that responds to all these concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and, and all these things that we didn't have in the tropics when we were evolving, mm-hmm. that part of the brain doesn't know love. That's the reptilian brain. 
And when the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, it thinks, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? It's eat, mate, or kill. There's no love. Love exists in the higher parts of the brain. And the mammalian brain, which considers, wait, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is it going to have on my loved ones and the tribe and the family and or the highest part of the brain, the neocortex, which says, how is it going to impact my long-term plans and my contribution to society and my belief in you know, spirituality and art and music and everything that makes being human worthwhile? That all lives in the upper brain. So what we're dealing with is really a conflict between the upper brain and the lower brain. We're not dealing with a deficit of love in the upper brain. There might be a deficit of love. I, you know, I did have a deficit of love. My mother had a hard time being a full-fledged mother when I was little, and so I grew up with a deficit inside me. I do have a hole in my heart from that. But I can solve the problem by disempowering that voice of justification instead. So here's how that works. If I were to say, I'll only ever have chocolate on the last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of the calendar month, then this is a little embarrassing, but this is how I did it. I decided that my reptilian brain was going to be my inner pig. And I decided that anything that it was squealing for was going to be pig slop. So chocolate, you know, on a Wednesday or early in the month, that was going to be pig slop. And when I heard it say something to try to justify eating the chocolate, like, oh, Glenn, you could just start tomorrow, or really you worked out hard enough, I would say, that's pig squeal. And I would say, I don't want that my pig does. I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And after 30 years of suffering, really intense effort to find the love that I couldn't find, what finally made a difference to my food addiction was, I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do, because it would wake me up at the moment of impulse, and it would give me those extra microseconds that I needed to remember who I was and why I decided on my plan in the first place. And, and it wasn't a miracle. I don't want to say that I immediately just stopped. But what happened immediately was it restored my sense of power and agency. I stopped feeling like I had no control. I stopped feeling like some outside force had a gun to my head and was forcing me to eat. I felt like, okay, I might decide to have the chocolate right now, but that's me deciding. And once I recognized that, I realized I could also decide not to. And more often than not, I started deciding not to. And then I really did never have chocolate again. And it, it's been about um, oh, it's been years. It's been years since I had chocolate. I kind of lost count. It, okay. I had cravings, cravings for the first couple of months. After about six months, I barely had cravings anymore. After about two years, a chocolate bar looks like a big wrapper of chemicals to me. I don't, I don't have any pull to it whatsoever. So the body does disengage. And like I said, I started drinking kale and banana smoothies when I would crave the chocolate, and that helped a lot. I, <clears throat> I recognize that um, I was seeing a nutritionist, and I know all the right foods and what the wrong foods are and everything, but... If I don't plan it out and actually follow through, that's when I get the worst cravings. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, you have to take care of your authentic bodily needs. So working with a nutritionist is a really good idea. And I'm, I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist, so even though I know an awful lot about nutrition from working with hundreds of clients and 
reading as much as I did to recover myself. I don't presume to be able to tell anybody what to eat. So part of my system is for people to, you know, make up their own plan. But if you're not meeting your authentic nutritional needs, then your body is going to force you to be less discriminated because it has to get the nutrition and calories from somewhere. Uh-huh. And I tell people there, there are some rules you can't make. So, for example, I can never make a rule that says I will never pee again because I would be denying my body's authentic need. Similarly, okay. you, can't, you can't make rules that, that restrict your calories or nutrition too much because your body will say, screw it, we, we can't starve. We've got to get something. Uh-huh. Right. So okay. that's how it works. That, that's how it works. I mean, there's an awful lot more to it, but in its essence, I, I drew very clear lines. I made sure I knew the difference between my healthy and unhealthy thoughts about food. I became aggressive towards the lower part of my brain when it had unhealthy impulses in much the same way that an alpha wolf becomes aggressive to a challenger for leadership. When an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't look at the challenger and say, oh, someone needs a hug. Like, it doesn't want to love it back to health. It says, look, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? This is, this is not a game to that alpha wolf. This is a challenge for leadership. And I started treating my inner reptilian brain the same way, which I would call my inner pig. Like, get back in line or I'll kill you. This is, this is my game. This is not yours. I'm in charge. You're not in charge. I and, love that and what concept. I, Go ahead. Well, that, that's the essence of it. What, what I needed to be able to do that was clarity and focus, so I knew the difference between healthy and unhealthy eating. I needed to amplify my motivation, so I, once I had the rules that I wanted to follow, I asked myself, I said, I said, I know my pig says I can't do this, but what if I could? What if I could do this for a whole year perfectly? What would happen? And I projected a picture of my life, not just the weight that I would lose, but what it would mean to me, that I would have more energy and time to talk to other people, and I'd be able to put more of my pleasure-seeking activity into yoga and time outside, and I'd be able to be more present and be a better psychologist and be a better author and make a better difference in people's lives and you know, be there for my girlfriend and, you know, and just, just have the life that I always wanted to have. I had to really amplify that motivation, and I actually recorded it and listened to it every day. I had to be very, very clear with the rules, and then I had to be willing to be aggressive with the, with the pig and say, I don't need pig slop, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And if I made a mistake, I'd have to forgive myself with dignity. I couldn't self-flagellate. I, I tell people, look, if you touch a hot stove by accident, you want to feel the pain for a second so you can pay attention and figure out where the hot stove was and make sure you don't do it again. But after that, there's no point in putting your whole hand down on the hot stove and saying that you're a pathetic hot stove toucher. You know, you want to get up and make any adjustments you have to and aim again and forget about the mistake. Just go on. So I started learning how to forgive myself more quickly. And, um, yeah, I got better. And then I kind of accidentally published the book. It was a journal for a lot of years, just me versus my pig. I had a friend who asked me to publish it, and it just took off. I mean, we, it's been the number one to number three book on weight loss and eating disorders on the free side of the Kindle for almost three years. We've got 600,000 readers. We've got 1,800 reviews. It's, it's insane. I, just, I had no idea this was going to resonate with people. I figured this was my private hell um, but, and my private solution, but 
I showed it to a friend. He was in publishing. He said, we got to do this, and that's why I am where I am today. That's great. Congratulations. That's, that's really um, something that you don't recognize when you're going through it, that there's so many other people that can use that same information, and that's where I'm coming from with my mental illnesses and everything, that um, I always thought I was alone, but my message is that there's a support system. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, although you said I'm that. I'm so glad you found that. Thank you. That was God's plan, and that's, that's what I let everybody know, is that God had a plan for me that I had to struggle through all these situations so that I could be able to be supportive and help other people get through. So I don't say, oh, poor me. I say, happy for me, because look at where I am now. And I love sharing people like you on my show that can be inspirational to others, because that's what it's all about. We've got to help each other. But, excuse me, Um, I know I read someplace that you say, commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. So what does that mean exactly? Well, when you look at the psychology of winners, you know, athletes, hikers, um, business people, they, despite the fact that they fall down a lot, they commit every time with perfection. It's kind of like an Olympic archer that's aiming at the bullseye. Before they let go of the arrow, they're not thinking, well, gee, maybe the arrow is going to go in the bullseye or not. They actually need to see the bullseye, see the arrow going into the bullseye before they let go. And they have to purge their mind of all the doubt and distraction. And that's what committing with perfection means. Like, I'm 100% going to do this. And I joke around with people and I say, you know, there are other commitments in this life which you make with perfection. You don't get married and say to your spouse, gee, honey, I'm 90% sure that I can avoid sleeping with other women, but there sure are a lot of attractive people out there. You don't want me to lie, right? I'm just being honest. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. So the the nature of a commitment actually is perfection. It's 100%, a 100% commitment to hit the bullseye. If you, miss the, if you miss the bullseye, you're not supposed to shoot all the rest of the hours into the, audi- into the audience or up into the air and say, oh, screw it, I'm never going to do this. Right. You're supposed to get up, adjust your sails, and aim again. And it turns out that if you give in to that self-critical, self-castigating, aggressive voice inside of you, it says that you're pathetic and you're never going to do this and you've, you've failed a thousand times before so you're going to fail now. Why do you think this is any different? Why even bother trying? Why don't you even, why don't you just give up and be a happy fat person? Oh. If, you, if you give in to that voice, if you, if you indulge that voice, you're going to feel too weak to resist the next binge. See, that voice is binge motivated in and of itself. That voice itself is pig squeal. The appropriate thing to do after you make a mistake is to pay attention, analyze the mistake, make adjustments if you need to, and then let it go. Forgive yourself with dignity. Let it go and, you know, tomorrow's a new day or right this moment is a new moment. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. That's what it means. That's wonderful. That's that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. Um, So, you know my situation 
and what I'm doing. So what would be my first step to go forward positively? Well, what, what role would you like ice cream to play in your life? Well, now it's not the ice cream. Now it's the cookies. So I haven't figured out what role it plays. How do I figure that out? Well, if you stop and take a breath and you ask yourself whether cookies are something that you want to have once in a while, and if that's true, how often and how much, are they something you need to have out of your life entirely for a while? Like you need to do a 30-day experiment without cookies to loosen their hold on you? Mm-hmm. Are they something that you should never have again? Only you know. I can't tell you that. Okay. If, we had more, if we had more time, there would be an exercise I could do where I could project you into the future. Okay. And I could, I could show you your future three different ways, and we could decide. If, if you ever want me to come back, I'm happy to, to do that with you. Oh, Definitely. I definitely want you to come back because, like you said, your book has been very popular and um, the people that haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, I would love to be able to share with them again in like six months or so to keep it going. Um, Okay, so I guess the first step would be to figure out what that represents in my life. It doesn't matter so much what it represents in your life. It matters what you want to do with it. Okay. I, I tell people that the first step is to make one rule. Think about one thing you could do differently that you know would make a big difference. But it's not a gigantic deal. It's something you'd be willing to do as an experiment just so that you could learn how this game is played. So, for example, maybe you want to say, I will never eat more than one cookie per calendar day again. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to say that as an as a initial starting point. Or, you know, between now and New Year's Day, I won't have more than one cookie per day. If you want to, no judgment for me if you want to have 30 cookies per day, but if, you, if cookies are really bothering you, then, you know, maybe we start with one cookie a day and see how it feels. Okay. And if, if you want to commit to that, then all of a sudden, any voice in your head that says you should have more than one cookie a day is your inner pig. You, you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it a food monster or mm-hmm. you know, a junkyard dog. As long as it's not a cute pet, you can call it whatever you want to. Some people don't <laughs> like the word pig. Pig works for yeah. me. I don't know what works for me. No, that works. So make one rule and then watch yourself try to break it. And when you hear the very specific language associated with why the pig wants you to break it, then you can do one of two things. You could just recognize and ignore it because you know the pig only wants you to binge, so what's the point of listening to it? Mm-hmm. But even, even better is if you look at the logic that it's using and find the lie in its logic, where's the flaw in its logic, it'll have less power over you, less able to fool yourself. So if the pig says, well, you could just start tomorrow, start this one cookie a day thing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, all the research on neuroplasticity says that we're either always reinforcing or extinguishing our addiction. So if you have a craving for a cookie and you decide to have the cookie, you just reinforced the craving. If you have a craving for a cookie and you don't have the cookie, it's going to be easier for you to abstain tomorrow. So you've got to ask yourself, do you want it to be easier or harder tomorrow? Not, well, gee, one day is not going to matter. We can just start tomorrow because one day really does matter. So that's an example of logically disputing what the problem is. I, I wish I could keep working with them. I'm supposed to be on another call in actually 30 seconds mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
So um, I, let's just tie it, tie it up and, um, sh you know, you can share um, your information where people can get you. And um, you have some sort of a download on your website? Oh, yeah. I, I can give you a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format at NeverBingeAgain.com. Just click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list. You'll get that. What you'll also okay. get is a set of food plan starter templates a set of free food plan starter templates. So okay. um, no matter what dietary philosophy you have, you can get one for low carb or keto or high carb or you know, macro, what, whatever you're doing, you'll, there'll be a philosophy for you. And a set of recorded coaching sessions because I know this is a really weird thing in theory. You must be thinking, why is she having this psychologist that has a pig inside him on the call? But if you hear <laughs> it in practice, it's, it's a very life-giving, enthusiasm-restoring um, Great. process. So it's at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Perfect. Thank you. So what would you like to end this segment with and share with everyone? I just want people to know that it's a lot less complicated than they think it is, that this, this process will give them more self-esteem and freedom, not less, kind of like learning how to drive. You're, you have to spend some time learning the rules of the road and following them, but once you know them, then your radius of locomotion opens up dramatically. You can go anywhere you want to as long as you follow the rules of the road. And while you don't have any rules where you're just kind of driving through these dangerous intersections, you can't really go where you want to go because it's too dangerous. So a life of discipline is better than a life of regret for that reason. Freedom sits on top of discipline. All you need to do to never binge again is never binge again. It's not as complicated as you think. You don't have to sit by the river and contemplate your navel for years. Just make a few rules and get started. It's at neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. I'm so, I'm so sorry, but I really do have to go. Okay. So thank you, If Glenn, you could email me, we'll set up another time, okay? Yes, definitely. So enjoy your day and Merry Christmas. Hello? Okay. Have a great day. So everyone listening, thank you so much for your time and listening to everything that Glenn had to share. Please remember to subscribe to my podcast so you don't miss any important information shared by my guests. And as Glenn said, we will welcome him back, and I will let you know in advance when to watch for that interview because he does have a lot of great information to share. And, you know, he, he gave me some hope that it is possible to lose the weight. So also please show the, share my shows with your friends so they can gain value from all of my guests because there's such a variety of people that I talk to, and it would be great for you to be able to pick up a little tidbit from each of them. If you would like me to speak at your event, please contact me at Catherine at CatherineMLaub.com, and that's C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-M-L-A-U-B.com. My website is www.thecelestialspoon.com, T-H-E, D-E-L-E-S-T-I-A-L-S-T-O-O-N.com, and you can download a free report on overcoming stress along with purchasing a psychic reading or any mentoring with me. I also offer a download on vision boards, which I was going to um, let Glenn know that he gave me the thought of projecting on a vision board what I want to look like and post it through the house. I'm going to do that. So if any of you um, 
have the same struggles as me with the binge eating and whatever, find a picture of you when you were um, looking nice. And to me, I was only 95 pounds when I met my husband, and now I'm actually 180 pounds, and that's a major difference for me. So I'm going to post that picture through the house and let that feed me and help build me up. So, um, again, like I said, you can download my Overcoming Stress Report and look for the vision board um, directions. So, also, if you meet, email me and mention you heard my podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on any of my services or programs. And we can talk on the phone, through Skype, email, or if you're local to Central Suffolk County, New York, in person. And again, you can find Glenn at www.neverbingageagain.com, neverbingeagain.com. This is Catherine Lab. Have a wonderfully blessed day. Thank you for listening to our conversation. We hope that you found the discussion to be rewarding and inspirational, and you take action to create a healthier and happier personal environment for yourself and those you interact with. If you like this episode of The Celestial Spoon, please listen again next time to learn more about how spirituality has guided others to advance their lives. We wish you the best on your personal journey.